of Return of the Historic Faith. I am going to be your host today, Pastor Jeremy Anderson. I say today because I hope that Brother Matthew Marcel will be joining me soon on one of these episodes to be able to really get into this topic of dominionism in the church this antichrist spirit that has taken root in so many denominations and so many groups of believers who have taken part in this whole political agenda called Reawaken America. And friends, the fact is, Reawaken America is just one part of it. That's only one part of it. If you listen to yesterday's episode that we did live on YouTube, and as a matter of fact, I need to let you guys know that if you haven't heard yesterday's episode, then you're going to have to listen to it here on the podcast or 
you might still be able to find it up on Facebook on the Kingdom Christian Assembly Facebook channel or Facebook page, excuse me, or my personal Facebook page, which is Jeremy Redeemed Anderson. But it has been taken down off of YouTube. It did not last 24 hours on YouTube. And I have my suspicions why, but, you know, um, we're not going to get into that today. At least, I don't think we will. I uh, want to apologize for any sound issues. Um, it is raining here, and it is raining very, very hard. So if you hear the noise in the background, it's the rain. <laughs> it's the rain. Um, I'm hoping that the microphone will not pick up the rain but you never know I I, uh, I have a new microphone and it's decent quality but you know we we're, I'm not Tucker Carlson and this isn't Fox News <laughs> so if it rains you may hear it uh, but anyway we are going to be looking at a specific aspect of dominionism and something that they believe and that they teach to be true and why it is completely false. Now, this is the third episode that we've done on dominionism and this Reawaken America movement. And I have done a fairly good job of showing what the scriptures actually say about the kingdom of God and why dominionism and dominionist theology is completely false. It is a doctrine of men at the very least and you could very easily argue, and in fact, I am arguing in saying that the Antichrist spirit is behind it. I am saying that it is a doctrine of demons. It's a doctrine of devils. It's not just mere doctrine of man. But anytime we add to, take away from, or twist the scriptures to say something other than what they simply say it's wrong and it's a sin and it creates false doctrine it doesn't matter if you want to call it doctrines of men or doctrines of devils it is a false doctrine no matter how you choose to see it now today we're going to be talking about Re, the word re-awaken America. See, it's not awaken America or awaken the world or make disciples of America or make Americans into kingdom citizens. No, 
it's reawaken America and they want to take over the government in the name of bringing back the quote unquote Christian nation that we had in the beginning and put back in place the quote unquote Christian values that the Constitution was founded upon. Well, today we are going to talk about the lie of Christian America and the lie of any Christian nation other than the kingdom of God because there can't be. But we're going to look specifically today at America and why not only was God not behind the founding of America, but that God was purposefully written out of the uh, Constitution, I almost said Declaration of Independence, but how God was purposely written out of the Constitution. We're going to look at that and much more today on Return of the Historic Faith. First, I want to look really quick at politics in general and politics in the pulpit especially because that is what this is all about. This is a group of people who say that there is no separation of church and state and that politics belong in the pulpit. They should be preached at, in the pulpit. That the, fir the first day, the man said in the video I played, the audio of that video that you heard, he said that when pastors like myself do not preach politics in the pulpit, that we are not preaching the full counsel of God and that there is a special place in hell for pastors who do not preach politics from the pulpit. Well, I want to look at the way that Jesus and the apostles viewed politics really fast. And after we look at that, we're then going to go to, as I promised yesterday, Brother David Berceau's book and read from it, In God We Don't Trust, about the lie of Christian America. Alright, here we go. We're going to be talking about the way Jesus and the apostles viewed politics and what they taught on this issue. In the days of Jesus and the apostles and the days of the early Christians, Rome was no longer a republic. You see, Rome had been a republic in the past, but the Roman Republic came to an end with the ascendancy of Caesar Augustus in the days of Jesus. 
So they didn't have voting and elections during Jesus and the apostles' days the way that we have them today. But as I pointed out in the episode that Brother Matthew and I did on voting in politics, that there were still plenty of politics that went on in the government of Rome. And often there were all sorts of things going on behind the scenes of the government like scandals and different intrigues in deciding who would be the next Caesar. Now, when I say intrigues, what I mean is it often would involve murdering people in order to get to the throne. But there were plenty of other political offices in Rome besides the office of emperor. For example, there were the different Roman councils, the consuls, however you pronounce it, and there were censors, and there were senators, and there were different magistrates, and there were governors of the different providences. Now, that is something that we need to point out right there, that there were governors for each providence, because... Brother David Paxson said in the audio I played yesterday that the pastor of his church is running for governor of their state. I don't remember what state it is, and I don't wanna I don't wanna quote wrong, I don't wanna misquote him, but his pastor is running for governor. So Although in Rome, these different offices, none, none of them were, uh, you know, elective offices, men obtained these offices through political appointments. But again, there were often a lot of politics involved in getting these appointments. Now, in the days of Jesus and the apostles, there was also a lot of political unrest in many parts of the Roman Empire. The most notable part of the empire that was having a whole lot of political unrest, the most political unrest of any other Roman providence, was in Judea. Now, not only was there political unrest, but during the days of Jesus and the apostles, the Roman emperors and even the rulers of the lower offices, the, the, the governors and the senators, they were tyrants. Because, and I think that's important to point out, because that's what 
these men are preaching about standing up to tyranny, resisting tyranny. One man said that the Bible teaches we are to resist the devil. So, that means we are to resist tyranny. Well, we're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about that. But also, we're going to look at the fact that the tyranny today is nothing compared to the tyranny that Jesus, the apostles, and the early Christians had to go through. Now, in Judea, they truly, truly resented the rule of Herod and his sons, and they resented the Romans, who were the ultimate rulers of Judea. However, in other parts of the Roman Empire, the Jews usually had pretty good relationships with the Roman authorities. But there were many, many Gentiles who disliked the Jews, so outside of Judea there were sometimes conflicts between the Jews and the Gentiles during the New Testament period. And one of these places that had these conflicts was in Alexandria. Now, during the period of Acts, and I, I hinted to this yesterday, and I told you I was going to tell you completely about it today, and this is all of it. During the period of Acts, there were major uprisings that took place against the Jews in Alexandria, and the Jews there sent a delegation to Rome to protest against the various injustices that were being done to them. Also, during the period of Acts, Caligula decided to place, and this is what I talked about yesterday, Caligula decided to place a statue of himself as a god inside the temple in Jerusalem. Now, did you hear that? I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. We're not going there because... We're not talking prophecy right this second, but just let that sink in. Caligula, the emperor of Rome, placed a statue of himself as a god inside the temple in Jerusalem. There were also massive protests by the Jews, as you can imagine, in the various parts of Judea and in other parts of the world. Yet, you would never know anything about it from reading the book of Acts. Even though the twelve were all Jews, and even though Paul was a Jew, they stayed completely clear of this situation. You don't see the apostles or any of the New Testament Christians protesting against the treatment of Jews by Rome 
They didn't participate in any of the Jewish riots or the, the different protests and skirmishes against the Romans. And after the death of Caligula, Claudius became emperor. And as a result of some disturbances, he ordered all, I, I, I said all, of the Jews to leave Rome. And you read about this in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, talks about it. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And he came to them... So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Well, the reason that Aquila and Priscilla left Italy, they left Rome, and they came there to where Paul was is because Claudius had demanded all of the Jews to depart from Rome. Now, they left Rome and they went to Corinth. They did this because they had been ordered out of Rome. There were many, many protesters, and there was actually a whole rebellion, a revolution, the very same thing that these Reawaken America people are not just suggesting, but saying that Christians should do. We should rise up and take back the government. Well, that was literally going on during this time. The Jews were trying to fight back against the Romans, but Aquila and Priscilla, who were both from Rome, they did not take part in this. They were Jews. They were Jews. They weren't Romans from Rome. They were Jews who had to leave Italy. But they were also Christians. Because you see, Christianity started as a part of Judaism. These were Jews. We know this. The scriptures tell us that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And Jesus' 12 disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. He was a Roman citizen, but he was also a Jew. Now, millions of Christians read the passage that I just read in Acts 18 every single year and yet they do not grasp 
the significance of that passage with regard to the political world. Here was a minority group, the Jews, who were being discriminated against. In fact, it went beyond discrimination. They had been expelled from Rome, the place that was their home. It was the place where they had lived and resided. And many of these Jews had been born in Rome, so they were actually Roman citizens. But that made no difference at all. They had to leave their homes behind and move to other parts of the Roman Empire. So, what was the response of Paul, who was ethnically a Jew, or Aquila and Priscilla, who were ethnically Jews, but all three were followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, and Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. What was their response? Did they engage in protest? Did Paul write anything against this unjust discrimination? Did he and the other Jewish Christians become involved in the different plots to murder Claudius? In those days, people didn't vote the emperor out of office, man. They murdered him out of office. Caligula had just been removed from the throne in this very way. And later, Claudius was also killed, and so was his successor, Nero. But no, Paul and the other Christians, they did not take part in any of these things. Paul used these events to spread the kingdom of God, which is exactly what we should be doing with the events that are going on right now. We should be pointing out the evil behind it. We should be pointing out the prince of the power of the air and the antichrist spirit that is behind this globalist government system in order to get people to leave it and come join the kingdom of God. But the Reawaken America crowd that's not what they want. They want to overthrow the government. <laughs> they want to take dominion of Babylon. They literally want to take over the kingdom of the beast. They have somehow become deluded enough to believe that they can take over the government of Satan and his, the ultimate fulfillment of his seed, which is the Antichrist, the beast, they think they can take over his kingdom and somehow run it without uh, breaking or going against their Christian values or what the Bible says that Christians are supposed to do and how we are supposed to live. But way more than that, these people honestly believe that they can make it something it isn't. They think they can transform Babylon 
into the kingdom of God. The only way to do that, friends, is to spread the gospel and make disciples of the citizens of Babylon so that they leave Babylon and no longer are a part of it. The only way you could ever turn Babylon into the kingdom of God is in regard to its people. The American people can be saved, but America is bound for judgment no matter what, because America is a part of the kingdom of this world. And along with the other kingdoms in this world, it is destined for judgment. It has already been decreed. Once something is decreed by God, it will happen. You're not going to change it. You can prolong it, and if we were spreading the gospel, making disciples, then we could probably prolong the judgment of God. We could probably prolong the second coming. But we could also hasten the second coming, which is what we're called to do. We are called to make disciples of all nations because when the gospel is spread to all nations for a witness, then and only then will Jesus Christ return. The Bible is very, very clear. It does not say when all nations have been taken over by the followers of Christ, then he will return. No. Matter of fact, Christ taught the very opposite of that. He taught to spread the gospel, make disciples, and not to resist evil. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute us. That is what Jesus taught. Now, that's also what Paul taught, and that's what Paul did. He used the events going on in his day to spread the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God was Paul's kingdom. What happened in Roman politics, whether they were just or unjust, good or evil, it was of no concern to Paul. It didn't particularly matter to him that his fellow Jews had been discriminated against by Claudius or unjustly expelled from Rome. He wouldn't have cared if they had their swords removed, which would be tantamount to us having our guns removed. Paul saw this as a kingdom opportunity to spread the gospel. And that is how the apostles and the New Testament Christians looked at life and looked at how 
we are to live as followers of Christ. When Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, unrest was brewing in Galilee and Judea against the various policies and actions of the emperor Nero. And this led to the very first Jewish war that began shortly after Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. Yet, even though Paul was a Jew who doesn't even mention these matters, they were of no concern to him. Judea wasn't his kingdom. Rome wasn't his kingdom. His citizenship was inside the kingdom of God. And as he had told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul's mind was on heavenly things, not the affairs of this world. And our mind should be on heavenly things and not the things of this world. In short, Jesus and the apostles stayed out of the affairs of government. The Pharisees tried to draw Jesus into one of the political disputes of their day, which was the rule of Rome over the Jews and the payment of Roman taxes. But Jesus sidestepped this issue, and he told the Jews to render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Jesus was no Jewish patriot, my friends. He stayed out of their politics. He and his father had allowed Rome to conquer Palestine because it ultimately worked for the best for the kingdom of God. Jesus did not think as a citizen of Galilee. He thought as a citizen of God's kingdom. In fact, he was the king of God's kingdom. It's noteworthy that when the Jews wanted to make Jesus a king, he declined it completely. In the book of John, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, we see it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he, did a part, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So, you see, Jesus could have literally gone completely into politics as king of the Jews on the world, but it was not that time yet. It was not why he had come. If Jesus wanted his followers to be involved in politics, he would have told us so in his many, many teachings. He had many opportunities 
to tell people to do the things that the people in this reawaken movement say that Christians should. But that's not what Jesus taught, and it's not what Jesus did. The early Christians also had no part in politics. I truly suggest you go back and listen to one of the two episodes that are up on this podcast right now on this very subject. There's an episode with Brother Phil Baker, BDK, and David Berceau on predestination and politics. And there's also an episode from me and Brother Matthew Marcel on voting in politics. And in that episode in voting on politic voting in politics, I went over a lot of the same information that I just went over a minute ago, but I also go into a lot more information and I go into the early Christian writings on what they believed about voting in politics, politics in general, what believers should do when it comes to the governments of this world, whether we should take any part in them. So I really suggest that you go back and listen to both of those episodes, as a matter of fact. But now we are going to look at the lie of Christian America. We're going to go to Brother David Berceau's book, which is entitled, In God We Don't Trust. And I want to start by reading, I'm, I'm just going to read you guys, chapter 33, how God was written out of the Constitution. I may read another chapter as well if we have time. If not, then we can pick up where we leave off today in the next episode because we're going to completely go over the myth of Christian nations. There cannot be a Christian America because there cannot be a Christian nation on this earth. The kingdom of God, which every true follower of Christ that's connected to the true vine of Jesus Christ is a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is the only Christian nation. But now we are going to read chapter 33 of In God We Don't Trust by David Berceau, How God Was Written Out of the U.S. Constitution. In 1832, Dr. James R. Wilson, a professor of theology at the Seminary for the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, wrote, When the country was plainly in peril and the arm of Jehovah perceived to be necessary for our defense, then the God of creation was acknowledged. But when he had conducted our armies to victory, 
and set our country free from the oppression of foreign despotism, then with a blackness of ingratitude and an atheistic impiety, his name was erased from the fundamental law of the empire. The fundamental law to which Dr. Wilson was referring was the U.S. Constitution. And although he was completely wrong about God conducting our armies at all, much less to victory, or setting this country free, he is completely right about God's name being erased. Because neither the words God nor Jesus Christ appear anywhere in the Constitution. The Constitution makes no direct acknowledgement of God whatsoever. In some ways, this is the logical development that flows from the Declaration of Independence. As we've seen, the Declaration insists that the governments derive their authority from the people rather than from God, since that is what the men at the Constitutional Convention believed it's only logical that they refused to acknowledge God in the Constitution. Why we know this was purposeful. Dr. Wilson argued that the omission of God was intentional. It is believed that there never existed, previous to this Constitution, any national deed like this since the creation of the world. A nation having no God. In vain shall we search the annals of pagan Greece and Rome, of modern Asia, Africa, pagan America, and the isles of the sea. They have all worshipped some God. The United States has none. But here let us pause over this astounding fact. Was it a mere omission? Did the conv convention that framed the Constitution just forget to name the living God? Was this an omission in some moment of national frenzy? Was this an omission in some moment of national frenzy when the nation forgot God that indeed would be a great sin. God says the nations that forget God shall be turned into hell in Psalms 9.17. It was not, however, a thoughtless act and unintended omission. It was a deliberate deed whereby God was rejected. Now, that's a serious charge that Dr. Wilson made. 
but he was exactly right. The Founding Fathers deliberately left any mention of God out of the Constitution. In doing so, they established a strikingly new precedent. I say that because in contrast to the Constitution, all of the colonial charters specifically acknowledge God. And the key documents that, comprom that comprise the British Constitution likewise recognize God. Here are a few such examples. The English Charter of Liberties of Henry I in 1100. Know that by the mercy of God and the common counsel of the barons of the whole kingdom of England, I have been crowned king of said kingdom. The Magna Carta in 1215. John, by the grace of God, king of England, know that before God, for the help of our soul and those of our ancestors and heirs to the honor of God. The English Bill of Rights in 1689. And the said Lord, spiritual and temporal and commons, seriously considering how it hath pleased Almighty God in His marvelous providence and merciful goodness to this nation to provide and preserve their said majesty's royal persons most happily to reign over us. The Act of Settlement in 1700 After the making of which statute and the settlement therein contained your majesties, good subjects who were restored to the full and free possession and enjoyment of their rights and liberties by the providence of God giving success to your majesty's just undertakings. We must remember that the sole reason that the Constitutional Convention was convened in the first place was to correct the shortcomings in the former Articles of Confederation. The enacting clause of the Articles of Confederation say this, It has pleased the great governor of the world to incline the hearts of our legislators, we respectively represent in Congress, to approve of and to authorize us to ratify the said Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. So in the Articles of Confederation, the thirteen independent states acknowledge that their authority to govern came from God. In contrast, the men at the Constitutional Convention convened to modify those articles, omitted any such acknowledgement. We should also remember that in drafting the U.S. Constitution, the framers revered the various state constitutions and used them as models, and every one of those 
state constitutions except that of Virginia makes some reference to God. To illustrate, the Constitution of Massachusetts, ratified in 1780, contains the following acknowledgement of God and its preamble. We therefore, the people of Massachusetts, acknowledge with grateful hearts the goodness of the great legislator of the universe in affording us the course of his providence and opportunity deliberately and peaceably without fraud, violence, or surprise of entering into an original, explicit, and solemn compact with each other and of forming a new constitution of civil government for ourselves and posterity and devoutly imploring his direction in so interesting a design do agree upon ordain and establish the following declaration of rights and frame of government as the constitution of the commonwealth of massachusetts as i said only one state constitution made no mention of god and that was virginia thomas jefferson and james madison largely drafted the virginia state constitution interestingly jefferson was the chief architect of the Declaration of Independence, which denied that governments get their authority from God. And Madison was the chief architect of the Constitution, which omits any reference to God. In Prayer We Don't Trust is the name of the next chapter. And I think that what I am going to do tomorrow is go into the next chapter as well as some of the previous chapters because nothing shows the lie. I, I have found nothing that shows the lie of Christian America at its founding more than the facts presented in this book by Brother David Berceau. He shows from their own documents, from the original documents themselves, and from the things said and done by the Founding Fathers and by the people who were quote-unquote the Christians during that time that were 100% completely against the God of the Bible and what the Bible says a Christian should do and how he should live, he or she should live. But we are out of time today. We've been going for almost an hour. We've been going for 50 minutes now, 49 minutes. So I am going to go ahead and end today's program. I did not share any of the 
uh, information, any of the different speeches given or videos or audios from any of the Reawaken America groups today. I did not play or quote Clay Clark or any of the other Reawaken America guys today because I did that in the first two episodes. Now today I wanted to look completely just at what the Bible says, what Jesus and the apostles did and didn't do, and also I wanted to show the truth about the the origins of America being of God and the lie of this nation being founded as Christian. And tomorrow we are going to continue looking at the lie of Christian America and also the lie of a Christian nation, period. There cannot and never will be a Christian nation in this world as it stands now. One day, however, there will be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth. And when that happens, when that day comes, then there will be a Christian nation on the world. And actually, even before there's a new heaven and a new earth, because Jesus Christ is going to come down. We see in Revelation, it's, it shows us when the kingdoms of this world are transformed unto the kingdoms of our God and His Christ. And we're going to look and see exactly when that is. I can go ahead and tell you when it happens. It happens at the opening of the seventh seal on the title deed of the earth. That is what the scroll is. The seven sealed scroll in the book of Revelation is the title deed to the earth that only the Lamb of God was found worthy to open. And at the opening, after the opening of the seventh seal, the book of Revelation says, Now have the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and His Christ. And that is showing that the title deed has now been taken back. Satan no longer has authority over this world at that time. That is when it happens. And it is after the destruction, the defeat and destruction and judgment of the beast, the false prophet, and those who follow him at Armageddon, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, after that happens, Jesus Christ is going to set up the millennial kingdom. And during the millennium, that is when there will be a Christian nation. That is when the kingdom of God will be complete on this earth. On this earth, 
not the new heavens and new earth that I just talked about, but on this earth. And what a day that will be. And to that end, I cry, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. Brothers and sisters, for the Next Chapter Radio Network and Kingdom Productions, I am Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying, until next time, God bless each and every one of you. Grace and peace.